We are working through the book of Isaiah together. Typically, to start the missions week, so the week before kind of the main missions conference, I'll preach on missions. I was planning on doing that this time too, and then I looked and Isaiah 33 was before us, which is replete with themes that, are, that, that run through all of Isaiah that are related to missions. So I thought, well, Isaiah is such a missions book, and Isaiah 33 is a great missions chapter, so let's combine the two. So we're in Isaiah 33 to kick off our missions week. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the rack right in front of you that looks like this. This Bible is our gift to you. In fact, if you don't believe me, um, there's a little note that says you're allowed to take it home. So you can take it home. It's your Bible now. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. So if you would, take your Bibles and open to Isaiah 33. If you are using the Bible in the rack in front of you, that's on page 593. 593. And let's stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 33. Ah, you destroyer who yourself has not been destroyed. You traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. When you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Yahweh, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it's left upon. Yahweh is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he'll be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of Yahweh is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says Yahweh. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the people will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly 
who despises the gain of oppression, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches far. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem in untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there Yahweh in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor a majestic ship can pass. For Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. Yahweh is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, there are things that need to happen in our hearts that only you can do. So right now, those who are yours in this room, we unite our prayers. And we ask that your spirit would work in hearts in ways that man cannot accomplish. Use your word as we linger over it, as we weigh it, as we meditate on it. In the very ways you intend to shape us, may your spirit work mightily in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Those who have been in the church for a while know that Ann Judson is one of my favorite missionaries. She was the first female overseas missionary from North America. She was 22 years old when she married Adoniram, and immediately they embarked on their journey. It wasn't a simple journey. It was a harrowing overseas journey crossing the ocean in a boat. Her one Christian friend and that friend's daughter died in route. They were chased by authorities. She eventually became separated from her husband. The only person, um, the only Caucasian person in this foreign inn. While on her travels, she witnessed horrible brutalities. 
Early in her life, Ann Judson wrote in her journal, felt a willingness to give myself away to Christ, to be disposed of as he pleases. Here I find safety and comfort. Jesus is my only refuge. I will trust his word and rest my soul in his hands. And then later in life she wrote, a little while and we are in eternity. Before we find ourselves there, let us do much for Christ. What produces that kind of zeal? What produces that kind of faith? How can this church be an incubator raising up ands and Adonirams? Well, how about a book that begins with a prophet saying, Here I am, send me immediately after encountering encountering a holy, holy, holy God. Immediately after experiencing forgiveness from his hand. Here am I. Send me. So I believe this book, Isaiah, if we allow it, to capture our souls will shape us in the same ways Anne's soul was shaped. Because it will remind us of how broken and sin-stained our world is. How desperately it needs the justice and righteousness that only God's good king can bring. Because it points us to the work of Jesus on the cross for us. And because it exposes God's heart. Who takes sin so seriously and will balance the scales of justice. But also who aches for all nations to know the blessings that his ultimate king will bring. He wants them to know his rescue. And so the book of Isaiah is a perfect primer for Missions Week. In a sense, for us, it's not just Missions Week in Isaiah. It's the Missions Year. And in our passage, importantly and critically, it makes clear that God's heart is for all, for those near and for those who are far off to know his saving power. So here's how I want to proceed this morning. I want to begin by briefly surveying the whole passage just so we can get a feel for the lay of the land. And and that'll take about 15 minutes of the sermon. And then I want to go back, after we've done that, go back and look at three key verses which drive home God's mission's heart. So let's look at our chapter. It divides into three parts. Verse 1, this taunt against the Assyrians, those destroyers who've not yet been destroyed. And then there's a prayer in verse 2 that runs, and the section runs from 2 to verse 6, a prayer and expected answer. 
And then from 7 to 24, you have a second prayer, an extended answer. So if, if you, if you want to make that a little punchy, which I like to do, you could say verse 1 focuses on the plight. Verses 2 to 6 focus most on prayer. And verses 7 to 24 focus most on the rescue. So plight, prayer, rescue. So verse 1, the plight quick reminder of the plight of the Israelites or the, of, of the Jews. Assyrian has risen in power and is crushing everyone in their sight. Their destroyer that has not been destroyed. And it was not uncommon for her to make a treaty, pay us and we'll leave you alone, only to turn back on their agreement once the payment had come. As Darth Vader might say, I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it further. But this destroyer, the prophet says, will be destroyed. Setting us up for what's to come in the rest of the chapter. The betrayer will have his own sins fall back on his own head. The second section, verses 2 to 6, has both a prayer and an expected answer in 5 and 6, but the focus is on that prayer in verses 2 to 4. A desperate people call out to their God. Verse 2 is so beautiful. You see it there? O Yahweh. You see L-O-R-D in all caps. It's Yahweh. O Yahweh, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in time of trouble. I just want to say, um, if you're in this room and you're weary and beat down, not by the Assyrians, but by some other enemy in your life, this is a beautiful prayer to take onto your lips. It starts with be gracious. A sense that God acting is, is not deserved. You don't owe it to me. I don't stand over you, God, expecting you to measure up to my expectations. No, it's just an open-handed plea. Be gracious. I don't deserve it. Be gracious. And then we wait. It's a word you find over and over again in Isaiah. So much of faith is trusting God and waiting. Because in his wisdom, God acts on a different timeline than we do. He has purposes in that waiting. We hear about, we learned about that when we studied Lamentations. I don't know all those purposes, but as we wait for him, we come to know him better. We grow in our reliance upon him. And then we ultimately do find our reward. So waiting is a key part of our prayer. Hopeful, expectant, waiting. God, be gracious, we're waiting. And then be our arm and our salvation. See how he's casting his whole hope on God. All our eggs are in one basket. 
It's not me plus you, my arm and your arm. It's not I'll do my best, God, you do the rest. No, God is our all. We approach prayer like that. Of course, the prayer goes on in verses 3 and 4 to describe what happens when God acts. They're telling God, this is how you act. In our prayers, it's good to recount to God his character to root our requests in who he is. Think about it. Can you start giving me an allowance? Isn't quite as effective as I know how much you want to teach me responsibility. You want me to mature. You want me to learn how to use money well. So what if you started giving me some additional chores and I could learn or earn an allowance? Which is, which is going to work better? A request that's rooted in an understanding of their character. When we understand God's character and root our requests in that, it's when we're praying in line with God's heart. When we know God well, this is how we'll pray to him. I think often both the, the, the quantity but also the content of our prayers is a reflection of how well we know him. So that's the prayer, verses 2 to 6. And it's met right away with a prophetic word about what God will ultimately do in answer to the prayer. The God who's exalted and dwells on high will come down and fill Jerusalem, Zion, with his justice and righteousness, verse 5. And so doing, verse 6, he'll bring stability, salvation, wisdom, knowledge. It is God's character, we can count on it, he will act. And that takes us to the third section, the longest section, the third and final P, right? Plight, prayer, rescue. If you think of a better P, a P word that says rescue, you can tell me later. The thesaurus just didn't have the right word. The third section also begins with a prayer of sort, the crying out of verse 7 is crying out for help. That's what that word means. Through tears. Verses 8 and 9 give the reason they're crying out. Revisit the plight. The Assyrians are causing such trouble. They've laid waste the hideways. They've betrayed covenants. People and cities are destroyed so that the whole, the whole of Israel is languishing. The, the, the leaves are falling off prematurely. Times are awful, and so people are crying out to God. But though this section includes prayer and plight, it focuses on God's rescue. And verse 10 is the turning point. We just looked at verse 5, how the people said, Yahweh dwells on high, but will yet fill Zion now, when Yahweh prepares to rescue Zion, listen to the language he uses, which echoes verse 5. Now I will arise, says Yahweh. Now I myself, now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. The very thing they are praying for, he's doing. 
and his first order of business when he rises up to rescue in verses 11 to 14 is to clean up Jerusalem. Problem's not with those nasty Assyrians. The problem is in here amongst God's own people. Fire is coming, a terrible, everlasting fire. And is the case at, and as is the case with God's judgment, we're getting exactly what we chose. We are the one who gathered all the chaff, and we're the ones who, with our breath, light the spark. And yet at the same time, it's God who's arising to bring judgment, pouring out his fire on ourselves, the very fire we chose. You see, when God arises to rescue, his rescue involves, and it must, if he's going to save this world from sin, from our, the effects of our rebellion against him, he must squash the rebels. He must defeat his enemies. And when the scriptures describe this, it consistently likens, to it, likens it to an unquenchable fire. Judgment comes to Jerusalem so that, you see in verse 14, the sinners are afraid. The godless tremble. And in their quaking, they ask a critical question, a question that repeats several times in the Bible. Who can dwell here where the fire burns? If God is burning in his wrath against sin, who can stand? The answer? Verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. It actually sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Matthew 25 when he's separating the sheep from the goats. Now the rest of the scripture fills this idea out for us. Because it's pretty clear that it doesn't mean that as long as you're a good person, you go to heaven and escape fire. I mean, if we've been following along the book of Isaiah, it disavows us of any sense that any of us can be good enough. Later on, we'll hear, all all we like sheep have gone astray. And in chapter 6, the prophet himself is saying, woe is me, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. Even verse 24 of our chapter makes clear we've all gone astray because there's iniquity in all of us that needs forgiving. But neither does a passage like this or Matthew 25 allow us to think that it doesn't matter how we live as long as we prayed a prayer and asked Jesus to save us from our sin and walked an aisle and got wet somewhere. We're good. No. Because God's rescue plan involves making a people for himself 
who are zealous for good works. So here's how it works in the story of Scripture. The rescuer comes to sinners like us, rebels like us, transgressors like us. And he offers himself as a sacrifice so that our sins can be forgiven. And the one obstacle that that kept us from our Father is taken away so that we can be restored again to a relationship with our Father. And when we are restored to a relationship with our Father, it's like the blood starts flowing again. Our natures are made new as they were originally intended to be. And our, our actual heart desires, our natures change so that we desire different things. Now, we might do it imperfectly as we still carry this body of flesh with us, but we pursue things like caring for the oppressed, just and fair financial dealings. We view human life, all of it as valuable, and violence as disgusting, and we don't allow our eyes to fix on evil things. For those whose Treasure is the fear of Yahweh, to use the language of verse 6. For those who are humble and contrite and tremble at his word, to use the language of Isaiah 66. For those who have turned from their sin and run to Jesus as their only hope, God will rescue them. It's not their self-righteousness, not their confidence in themselves. Those people are humble and turn to God and allow them to sh- allow Him to shape their hearts that no rescue. So I want to ask you, where are you today? Where would you place yourself? Maybe you're with a quaking sinner saying, if fire's coming, who can stand? That's you. With humility, run to Jesus. He forgives, restores you to a relationship with your Father. And the blood starts flowing. Maybe you're among those who are producing chaff and lighting matches. Or are you one who trusts Yahweh and has allowed him to transform you into one of his citizens? I want to push this a little harder for those who claim Christ. Do you, do you claim Christ but live like the world? Or have your commitments to Christ actually changed you? Well, from verse 16 of our passage all the way to the end, we hear then of the blessings that belong to those who fear Yahweh. Now, of course, for the original audience, the specter of Assyrian dominance would be on their minds. 
but it's clear that this section is talking about a much greater day than a rescue from the mere defeat of the Assyrians. Sure, God is going to drive away the Assyrians, but that would just be a taste of the greater rescue described here. And as we look at 16 to the end, it's critical that we see, just as we saw in chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 32, that this rescue will only come about because a king will come. Verse 17. Verse 22 says he'll be embraced by us as our judge, our lawgiver, and our king. Here's what I want you to see. It's the king's coming and reception that enable the blessings that follow. So let's climb this mountain of blessings starting in verse 16. God's people will dwell safely and have abundance. Verse 18, oppressors like the Assyrians with their tallying and taxing will be no more. The invading armies will be gone from the land. You see that in verse 19 as well. Verse 20 describes Israel's stability and an unending feast. Verse 21 speaks of how vast the king's land will be. In fact, in that song, I am bound, or on Jordan's stormy banks, I'm bound for the promised land, there's a, there's a line about the, uh, the unending shores that's taken from Isaiah 33. It'll be safe from marine invasion in verse 21. Verse 23 describes how God's people won't even need a navy. God is their arm. He is their safety, so the cords hang loose and the sails limp. And yet they have plunder, even the lame share in it, because it's on the basis of God's strength, not their own. So it's a picture of safety, safety, abundance, stability, and feasting, all because the just and righteous king is here. But the summit of this mountain journey comes in verse 24, where sickness is gone and sin is forgiven. In other words, the curse that Adam brought in is undone. When God arises to rescue, our rescue, not P, first he deals with the rebels. But for those who embrace his king, he brings about an unending season of prosperity and joy and stability. The earth is whole as God intended it. Sickness is gone. Iniquity is pardoned. What a day that will be. I long for it. So that's, that's our overview. Prophetic message Isaiah gives us to do. Plight, prayer, rescue. But I said I want to go back and dig deeper into three different verses with the remainder of our time. And the first verse that I want to look at is actually two verses, verses 1 and 14. Remember how this chapter started with that taunt against the Assyrians. I called it plight because it was describing how terrible the Assyrians were, but it was also saying they'll be destroyed. God's going to destroy them. What they've dished out will come back on their own heads. But when God rises to rescue in verse 10, who is it who's trembling in verse 14? You'd expect it to be the Assyrians. But it's not. It's the sinners in Zion. 
There's an elitist mentality that says we are God's privileged people and the heathen out there deserve God's wrath. Go get them, God. But the Bible has a very different message. It says that all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, all of us are under sin. It doesn't matter what denominational badge you wear. Sin is pervasive. And all deserve God's wrath. Well, you can say, well, some of the Assyrians might have been bad. It's not saying all the people in Zion were bad. Just keep reading Isaiah. You see, the prophet is doing something here. He's turning the tables. Yes, the Assyrians deserve judgment, but so do those in Zion. It's a theme all the way throughout Isaiah. He has a whole section focused on God's judgment against the nations, chapters 13 to 23, but the thrust of the book is telling Israel herself that she's become so infested that God must rise up in judgment against her. Do you know that when Paul writes his missionary support letter to the Romans, he begins with three chapters establishing that all of us are under sin. All of us are deserving of God's wrath. Maple Avenue. Until we are convinced of how desperate the human situation is. How dark the human heart is. Not just some people. Not just those bad people who vote for such and such a candidate. Or who live in such and such a place. Or who follow such and such a religion. But everyone. Including ourselves. Until we see that the flame of missions will not burn in our hearts. But thankfully, our time in Isaiah offers a cure for that. There's one contribution toward that. We have verse 1 and 14. Good medicine. Judgment for Assyria, but also judgment for Zion. The second verse I want us to link over is verse 24. The last verse. We've talked in our series of Isaiah about Isaianic clues. And this is certainly one of those clues. I mean, you look at it, and it talks about iniquity being forgiven. Hold on. I, I, I thought verse 15 said that the, the good people are the ones that God rescues. Well, why do they need their iniquities to be forgiven? Or hold up, I thought this is a king that brings justice and righteousness. So how's this good? How can a just king be letting the criminals out of jail? Just, oh, iniquity is forgiven. How can he be just but also forgive? 
And if it's true that all of us are under sin, then none of us deserve to be part of the deliverance. None of us deserve to be part of the good king's good kingdom. weird this verse 24 surprising now we got our first hint of that kind of language back in chapter 6 verse 7 when isaiah's own uncleanness is cleansed and pardoned where a tongue goes to the altar and takes hot coals and cleanses him we see another clue in chapter 40 verse 2 where it says speak tenderly to jerusalem Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. Pardoned, but then paid? This mysterious picture finally becomes clear in chapter 53. Yes, a just king is coming but there is also a suffering servant who's coming. Turn ahead in your Bibles to chapter 53. I just want to read a few verses from that section. To many of us, it's a familiar section. Uh, page 614. Listen to what it says about this suffering servant who's going to come. Isaiah 53. I'm going to read verse 5 first. I'll read 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see what's being done with our iniquity so that a just king can pardon it? Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, you shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Does it make sense? The clues that Isaiah is laying together. How this all works. All of us under sin. So Jesus, the promised king, comes first as the suffering servant to bear our sins upon himself. So that we can be made righteous. We can be forgiven. Maple Avenue, until we really know the glory of our own sins being forgiven by Jesus, we're not going to capture that missionary spark. Jesus will just be another therapy and a long list of therapies that will make our decent lives a little bit better. And such a Jesus will never drive us to cross oceans and endure heartache so that others can know him. Such a Jesus is fine staying closed up in our briefcases at work. I mean, people are doing pretty fine without him, it seems. 
the summit, the mountain of God's blessings for those who inhabit God's eternal and perfect city. They have this emblazoned across their chests. Forgiven. 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 That's everything. So how we think of our identity. That leads to the final verse that I want us to linger over, which is verse 13. When God rises up to act, who does he want to know about his actions? His actions that, that yes, begin in judgment, but all his actions, including his mighty acts of rescue. Who does he want to know? It isn't a message just for Israel. It isn't a message just for Maple Avenue. It's a message for those who are near and for those who are far off. Isaiah turns to this language again later on in chapter 57, verse 19, when he says, there's peace coming, peace, peace, announce it to those who are far and to those who are near. And so when Jesus comes and he dies on the cross for our sins and then he rises up and then he tells his disciples, I got to give you my Holy Spirit so that you can be my witnesses and make the gospel known. And then he rises up into heaven and then the disciples gather right where Jesus said and the Holy Spirit does come down and they start preaching. And when they preach, guess who can hear? Everybody in their language can hear, even though they don't know Hebrew. Look at Acts 2. Turn there. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack, it's on page 910. Peter preaches this sermon. Everyone's hearing it in their own language. And then the people, when the sermon's over, are like, what do we need to do? Acts 2. He first tells them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But then he tells them about Isaiah. About Isaiah 33 and Isaiah 57, where a promise is made. He says, For the promise is for you, for your children, those near. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God's gospel is for the whole world. Our women's Bible study was in Acts 2. Sorry, Ephesians 2 this past week. And again, Paul takes them to Isaiah 33 and 57. Jesus came and preached his gospel to those who are near and those who are far off, Ephesians 2.17. So sin is pervasive. 
It's within those who are near and within those who are far off. When God rises up, he'll judge sin, but he'll also forgive iniquity for those who turn to him. And according to verse 13, God's heart is that this be announced to those who are near and to those who are far off. If God's heart is for those who are near and far to hear, should our hearts be numb to those who are far off? If Christ wept for sinners, should our cheeks be dry? If the Holy Spirit made this message to be heard in all tongues, should we not make it known to all nations? If we've cupped our hands over our mouth with Isaiah and said, Woe is me, for I am unclean, only to have the atoning blood of Jesus applied to us, should we not say with Isaiah, Here I am. Send me. 21-year-old Ann Judson wrote, When I get near to God and discern the excellence of the character of the Lord Jesus and especially his power and willingness to save, I feel desirous that the whole world should become acquainted with this Savior. The book of Isaiah is many things. But one thing it certainly does is expose our hearts to God's heart for the nations. May we be changed by Isaiah. And may our church produce many like Ann Judson. Let's pray. God, the hard work that needs to be done isn't something we can do with our hands or our lips. It's the work of your Spirit. So take the sword of the Spirit, which is your word, and pierce us and shape us and grow us, that this church might raise up many Ann Judsons. In Christ's name, amen.